So Holy Spirit, help us to understand that kind of complicated passage and know how we can guide our lives by your character. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, hello, 945. Good to have you here. You made it through 405 closure and 520 and traffic apocalypse and all of that. So great to have you all here. I want to start by doing a little bit of an experiment. Um, And don't worry, it won't be embarrassing much. Uh, I, I want you just to all close your eyes. Close your eyes right now. And without really thinking about it, I want you to point whichever direction you think is north. Just right now, point. Okay, most of you got, you can open your eyes if you want and look around. Yeah, kind of, a lot of you got it, but some of you, a couple of you are pointing with both hands in different directions, trying to cover the bases, right? In case you want to know, it is that way. I was amazed at how many of you got that right, though. I thought surely in the community center you would be lost, but no, community center people got it better than sanctuary people, so you have that going for you. The point of that was this. It is difficult to find our way if we don't know which way is north. If you've ever hiked, you know this to be true. I remember one time hiking in the Olympics on a trail where there were supposed to be these great views of the Pacific Ocean, and the trail started by heading north, so I started out on heading north. I did that for about an hour until I got my first glimpse of the Pacific Ocean, which was to my right. Think about it for a minute. I was headed south. I was supposed to be going north. So, but once I knew which way north was, I could reorient myself and go in the right direction. That's a metaphor for this sermon. In order to navigate our way through life, through school, through parenting, dating, marriage, career, relationships, retirement, finances, we have to know which way is true north. We have to know which way is true north, morally, ethically, all of that, so that we can reorient ourselves if we're headed the wrong direction. Because without knowing which way is north, we do go in the wrong direction. That's why nothing could be more practical than this sermon series we're doing on the the I am statements of Jesus, where Jesus says things like, I am the vine, I am the door, that sort of thing. And these aren't just metaphors. These, and they're not just names, because in Hebrew culture, a name was more than just a label. It said something about the character of the person, the essence of the person. told you something about who they were. That's why God is always renaming people in the Bible. Uh, Peter beca- Simon becomes Peter, which means the rock. It says something about his character. So nothing could be more practical than this sermon series on the I Am statements, because those say something about Jesus' character. And every experience we have of worry, sadness, boredom, every way we mess up our lives comes from not understanding who God really is and his character. But if we understand his character better, we can reorient our lives in ways that will give us better decisions, better relationships, more joy, more adventure. His character is our true north. And every time Jesus says one of these I am statements, he's saying something about who he is, but he's also claiming to be God. Because as we just read, that's God's name, right? God says, my name is I am. So every time Jesus says, I'm something, the vine, the door, whatever, he's claiming to be God, which makes him one of three things, a liar, a lunatic, or he was who he said he was, Lord and Savior. So today, in the middle of this sermon series this summer, I want to look at the place that this name first shows up, way back in the Old Testament. And the context is the Jews have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. So then finally, God says to Moses, In a burning bush, go, I am sending you to bring the people out of Egypt. And I always imagine Moses at this point kind of looking around going, who's he talking to? Because what comes next is Moses comes up with two full chapters of excuses why he can't do this. It's one of the 
Funniest parts of the Bible, just excuse after excuse. And his first excuse is, but I don't even know your name. Who should I say sent me? And God says, my name is I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And it's kind of a weird name, don't you think? Like, why didn't he just say, my my name is Fred? You know, tell them Fred sent you. When my wife and I were picking names for our kids, we never once considered this as a possibility. I am Dudley. It didn't sound right. Right? So what is up with this name? That's what we're going to talk about. It reveals something of God's character, that I, several things about God's character that I, can think, that I think helps us orient ourselves in life, in positive directions. And the first is this. I am means he exists. And I know that sounds kind of basic, but we need reminding of that. Because some of us don't really believe he exists, in which case there are some arguments that are, give really good rational reasons why we can believe that. I've said those in other sermons, encourage you to look at those. But even if we say we believe God exists, most of us, we still live as functional atheists, saying we believe that God exists, but acting as though he doesn't. You know, we worry. We don't take risks to follow him because we're not sure he's there. We, 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 we pursue money and comfort and all of that stuff because we think that's what really matters. That's all we can see. Functional atheists acting as if God doesn't really exist. See, we Western Christians have been really good at turning God into just an idea, a concept. You know, but he's not real to us in the way that a chair or the wall is real. And the result is he doesn't change the way we live. We don't orient our lives around him. But if we really believe that God existed, that would change a whole lot of stuff, wouldn't it? Money? Who cares? God is the ultimate reality. Why waste time with that? Respect? Recognition? Who cares? God's at the top of the org chart. Let's impress him. Death? Who's afraid of that? We're just going to go be with Jesus anyway. God here is saying, I am, I exist, I'm ultimate reality. But more than just I exist, it's even deeper than that. He's also saying, I'm not just one of many things that exists. I'm the ground of all existence. I'm what everything else comes from. See, at the time, the Egyptians had over 500 different gods for different things. Sun god, rain god, frog god, that sort of thing. So to say my name is I am, God's saying, I'm not just one out of many. I'm it. I'm the one that started everything. I'm the ground of all being. I am center and circumference. And what he's doing here is he's challenging all those Egyptian gods and the gods we pursue as well. Because, you know, we don't have frog gods. At least most of you probably don't have a frog god. If you do, we can get you help for that. But we have other gods, comfort gods, money gods, success gods. And we think those are the most real things there are. But God here is saying, nope, I am. And here's how this reorients our lives. It gives us confidence, hope, and courage. See, at this point, God probably didn't seem very real to Moses. His people have been slaves for 400 years. Where's God in that? More than that, his life seems to have kind of come to a dead end. Story starts by saying, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. So much disappointment in that one verse. Let me tell you why. See, Moses was born a Hebrew, but raised in Pharaoh's household, so destined for greatness. And his passion was to free his people. And the way he tried to do that was by killing an Egyptian, which led to his 40-year exile in Midian. And when it says he was watching the flock, the verb in Hebrew means ongoing action. So in other words, he was watching and watching and watching those stupid sheep forever. You ever feel that way? Just watching and watching and watching your life go by. 
And maybe Moses wanted some kind of adventure, but he was afraid because after all, he's bored, but he's also comfortable there in Midian. We call that golden handcuffs. On top of that, he's 80 years old, 80. So now his physical strength is gone, social capital gone, financial capital gone. If he was going to do something big with his life, it seems like time has passed him by. He is a failed, forgotten old man eking out a living in a nowhere part of the world. And now that he has completely lost everything that we would think of as being essential for leadership, God says, finally, now I can use you. Because we are never so much used to God as when we have come to the end of ourselves. Do you ever wonder, if God's so real, then why do these bad things happen to me and others? Why, if God's so real, why is my health failing or my marriage in trouble or my kids acting up? God, if you're so real, then why am I so bored? What God is saying to Moses is, hang on a minute. I'm going to show you how real I am. I'm going to get you out of slavery. I'm going to part the Red Sea in two. See, God's timing is never ours, but it is always brilliantly frustrating. This 40-year timeout in Midian that Moses got, hugely important for him. He learned a whole bunch of stuff, like how to survive in a desert. He's going to need that to guide the Israelites through that same desert to the promised land. How to have patience, which he will need to guide those people who are going to criticize him all the time. When you think it is too late for anything new to happen, God says, hang on a minute. Those troubles you face are not the ultimate reality. I am. Which brings me to my second point. God's name is a verb, not a noun. That is so important. Tons of different ways to translate this word, I am, from the Hebrew. It could be I am, I will be who I will be, I am the one that is, I am the always ising one, whatever. It's always a verb. God's character never changes, but he gives himself the name of a verb, which is important. That means that he is revealed in action. That's what verbs are, action words. And here's how that reorients our lives. God becomes real only when we let him act as if he were real and act in our lives, and only if we act as if he were real instead of as functional atheists. He's revealed in action. My youngest daughter, Lucy, has this habit of narrating her life with one-word verbs. So, for instance, if she's pouring milk, she'll say, pour. If she's sad, she'll go, moan. One day my wife was reading and Lucy looked over her shoulder to see what she was reading and she said, peer, right? Just this series of one. I love that about my youngest daughter. It's like her life is a series of action words, right? And that is God, a series of action. That is us, should be us, action. Moses never would have known that God was real unless he acted by going to Pharaoh, by stepping foot in the Red Sea to see God divided in two. See, to see God, you have to do something, not think things, Presbyterians, See, a lot of times we Western Christians, we'd love to turn God back into a noun, not a verb. Nouns are safe. They don't do anything. They just refer to stuff. And we can control nouns. In fact, that may be one reason Moses asked for God's name. Because in the magical thinking of the day, the idea was if you knew someone's name like a voodoo doll, you could control them. Sort of like a story I heard, which I'm sure isn't true, but kind of makes this point, about a pastor who saw a kitten stuck in a tree But the tree wasn't sturdy enough for him to climb, so he decided to tie a rope to his car and then to the tree and then drive until the tree bent down far enough so he could get the cat. So he did that, but he drove too far, and the rope broke, and the tree snapped upright, and the cat went sailing through the air. This is a tragic, tragic story, not. And he felt terrible. He tried to find the cat, but he couldn't, so he prayed very piously, Oh, Lord, I commit that kitten into your care. Well, a few days later, he was at the store and met one of his parishioners, and he was kind of 
kind of surprised to see that she had cat food in her cart because he knows that she, this woman hated cats. So he asked about it and she said, well, you know, I've been refusing to get my little girl a cat, even though she's been begging for one. I told her that God was going to have to give it to her. So she went outside, knelt down and prayed. You won't believe it. Right then a cat came flying out of the sky and landed in our yard. What could, I had to let her keep it. Okay, God can't be controlled like that. He is not just some kind of vending machine. Put in the prayer, get what we want. And by making his name a verb, God is saying, you can't control me. I will be who I will be, and I will be real when you act as if I'm real. When we give 10% or more of our money to his purposes and watch him provide. When we lay down our pride and reconcile, as he tells us to do. When we serve in his name, as he tells us to do. When we act as if he's real, we see him. Which brings me to the third point, and that is this. When God says, my name is I am, he also means you're not. <laughs> you're not, Moses. You're not the center of the universe. I'm not the center of the universe. You're not. God is. See, Moses here is giving two chapters of excuses why he cannot uh, lead the Israelites out of slavery. What if they don't believe me? What if they don't, you know, what if they don't like me? All this stuff. He's paralyzed by fear. You know why? Who's he looking at? himself. And God says, it's not about you, Moses. It's about me. Moses keeps saying, who am I that I should do this? Who am I to lead the people out of slavery? But God inverts that who am I into I am. Moses says, am I able? God says, no, but I am. God says, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will redeem. I will take you as my own, to my, as my own people. What word gets repeated? God says, I will deliver. I will rescue. I, not you, Moses. There is no I in team, Moses. But there is an I am. You're involved, but I am doing it. The question is not who am I. The question is who is I am and what's he doing? And this reorients our lives by easing our worries. You know, whenever I face some kind of challenge, you know, how's the church doing? How's the staff doing? How's the budget doing? How are my kids doing? You know what? It's not as if God is up in heaven wringing his hands going, oh, I've held the universe together for eons, but this issue at Bell Press has got me stumped. Right? It's not, that's not happening. In those moments, if we can practice the presence of God, it eases our worries. We got an email from a woman in our church who had a number of painful memories, one of which was giving a baby up for adoption when she was 18. She knew she did the right thing, but this memory haunted her of putting the baby in his bassinet in the hospital, then being wheeled out to her parents' car, felt like she just abandoned him. Well, she, she went to our inner healing prayer ministry here and in prayer session with one of our counselors, as Jesus guided her imagination, she pictured that scene again. But this time she saw Jesus holding her and her family, arms around them. And instead of putting the baby in the bassinet, this time she gave him to Jesus. And that image, accompanied by a sense of his presence in that prayer session, healed that memory for her. See, we are not the center of the universe. God is. And when we, when we let him be and experience his presence, it eases our worries. And you know the other thing this does for us? The other way this reorients our lives, it gets us freedom from ourselves too. Not always thinking about ourselves and our worries and our problems. You know, and there is such freedom in that. Not to have to think about myself all the time. Right? How does this affect Scott? How does Scott feel today? Is Scott happy? Oh, who cares about Scott? God is the center of the universe, and if I focus there, I find freedom from self. Which brings me to the last point, and it's this. God's name is personal. 
He can be known. To ease Moses' fears, God says to him, I will be with you. And he uses the same Hebrew word as I am. It can be translated I will be or I am. In other words, he is the God who is with us. You see this as well when he refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In other words, he's personal. That's why I think he appears in a burning bush in fire because fire is not something you believe in. You experience it, the heat, the smell, the smoke. Moses believed in God, but now he's had a personal experience of God, personal. And this finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus when God himself comes in the person of Jesus to rescue this world and show us who he is. And Jesus uses this name on purpose, I am, to describe himself. I am the resurrection and the life. That's not just a metaphor. He's saying, I'm the one who will give you life when you feel dead. I am the bread of life. I am the one who will nourish you. You know, I've always thought it's interesting that God chooses the to be verb as his name, the verb of ultimate ontology. And I hope you all have a higher sense of self-esteem now that you heard me use that big word today. It's like saying to Moses, tell them the ground of all being has sent you. It's so philosophical. But the point is not philosophical. It's actually personal. As if to say, I am being at its most intense. I am existence at its very best. And when you have me, you have everything that is. Blaise Pascal, an 18th century philosopher, one night had this intense experience of God's presence that lasted for hours. And later he wrote about it and he said, fire, 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 not the God of philosophers and scholars. I think that's ironic since he was a philosopher. And I think this is where it's important to practice the presence of God. Tons of ways to do this. Prayer, fasting, worship. Simple ways to focus on the fact that Jesus is beside you. Focus on that image of him there and then just ask him, Lord, what do you want to say? And then just listen. Music helps us connect with God, which is why we use it in worship. We also need to get rid of some of our assumptions because part of the problem with us middle class types is we have all these assumptions of who God is, what he will say and do if he shows up. We think I have a mortgage, I have a career, I have a reputation, and we often don't hear what God may be saying if it conflicts with those things. We just say, well, I can't be God. So to experience him, we've got to get rid of those expectations. Because I have had enough experience to know that when we experience his presence, it brings joy, just like the woman in the prayer session I told you about. And if we reorient our lives toward him, we discover that he is center and circumference and we are all he wants and he is all we need. Let me give you an example. When I was in Cambodia last year with a team from this church, we met a man named Sok. And Sok gave me two really cool things. The first thing is I love pineapple. And he showed me that if you put lime juice on pineapple, it tastes amazing. So if you get nothing else out of this sermon, you got that today, okay? Never say we're not practical here. But the second thing he told me was his story. And during the Khmer Rouge time, his dad got killed, and his mom went to a Buddhist temple to be an acolyte, and he had to live with his grandparents. And they were very, very poor, so he went to a school run by a Christian relief agency where he heard about Jesus when he was 13 years old but didn't believe it. Well, then his aunt got acid thrown in her face and was severely disfigured, and the only people who would take care of her were Christians. They took her to the hospital. They paid her medical bills. They gave her a Bible. She read it and started to follow Jesus. And then she gave Soak a Bible and said, read it. So now he was hearing about Jesus from his aunt and at school. So he began to compare Jesus to Buddhism. And he said, for him, he saw no hope, no joy in Buddhism. Just endless cycles of suffering, only to get reincarnated and do it all over again. And the only hope of getting out of that was to become nothingness, which he found depressing. 
He said he also didn't see a lot of compassion in Buddhism because if you were suffering, the idea was, well, you did something wrong in a previous life. But in Jesus, he saw hope and joy. He saw a God who wasn't just up there trying to stay serene above it all. And he saw a God who came himself in the person of Jesus to rescue this world, a God of action. So he became a Christian. He says it changed everything. Jesus saved my life. He transformed my life. Now I have hope. Now I have joy. He got a scholarship from a Christian organization so he could go to college. And now he runs a Christian nonprofit that gives job training to poor teenagers in Cambodia, 90% of whom get a job and get out of poverty. And he said, now my cousins have become Christians, my grandparents have become Christians, all my friends have become Christians. And he said, but not my mom. And then he smiles and goes, yet. See, for him, the God revealed in Jesus exists not as an idea, but in reality. And God is a verb, a God of action. As others took action to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and as he acts, taking risks for Jesus to free people from poverty, he experiences Jesus. And Jesus is the center of his world and very personal, and that has completely reoriented everything, all of his life. As it can yours, as it can mine, as it did for Moses. You know, from here on out, Moses' life does get a lot harder, just truth be told. He has to confront the most powerful person in the world, Pharaoh. Has to lead stubborn people through a hot wilderness for 40 years, listen to them complain. And yet, he got to see God face to face. Got to see God divide an ocean in two, provide water from a rock. Way more exciting than watching a bunch of silly sheep in Midian. He gave up a lot, but what he got in return was all that is existence at its most intense. So I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you believe in God. Maybe you don't. Maybe you believe he's real, but he's not real to you. Wherever you are, this week, take some steps to make him the center of your universe. Make him a verb, not a noun. Do the things you know he tells you to do. Love the people he tells you to love. Take the risks he tells you to take. Pray. Practice his presence so that you can know that this great I am, he really is. And he wants to be everything to you, center, circumference, and everything in between. So Jesus, help us to claim that, live it out, believe it. Lord, for those of us who doubt your existence, would you please show us you're real? Lord, for those of us who say we believe, but you're not real to us, Lord, call us to those places where we have to act in ways that force us to rely on you so that we see that you are there. Lord, help us to practice your presence in a way that helps us live, not as functional atheists, but as people claimed by the king of the universe, sons and daughters of the Most High King. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.